Okay, we are at time. Let's begin with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Welcome back, all of you, to our study of Has American Christianity Failed? Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. We have been talking about sin, something we are all experts in, right? Not quite, actually. That's the irony. You would think, as sinful as we are, we'd be experts in it. But lo and behold, sin has such a distortive power, a distorting power upon us and upon our perception that we can't even know how sinful we are. It's a little bit like how leprosy, or at least certain biblical forms of leprosy, would cause your limbs to be become numb even as they fall apart, even as your appendages fall off. Um, you can't tell how bad it is because you can't feel it. And that's a, that's a really poignant analogy for how sin infects us. The more infected we become, the less we feel it and know it. And so uh, we need to be refreshed by the scriptures in terms of our knowledge of what sin is and how deep it goes. Now, if we could summarize and oversimplify vastly Wolf Mueller's point heretofore, it is simply to reiterate the biblical teaching, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Not mostly dead, not kind of slightly helpless, not, no, mostly dead. No, excuse me, all the way dead. Time for my coffee. Time for my coffee. I was already lamenting before this class that I needed, needed coffee this morning. We left off on page 60 in the bracketed words. That would be a good place for us to start again. Um, simply because we're going to see this, this twofold way in which we can think about sin. Wolfmuller writes, original sin does not refer to the origin of sin, but to the guilt of Adam's sin imputed to his offspring. Okay, so in one sense we've got this imputation of guilt, a juridical term, this idea that, of course, you and I literally, physically, consciously weren't in the garden. But Adam, who is best of us, was. Adam, who is the seed to the rest of the plant, we the branches, etc., he was. And so this, the guilt of his sin is imputed to us. And Adam, we are all one rebellious man. All right, Wolfmuller continues, it, and we are on page 60, right up at, top, up, up at the top in the big brackets. It also refers to the corruption of man's nature. Okay, now that this is something internal, not juridical and external, not imputation, but something internal and ontological, having to do with man's being. 
It also refers to the corruption of man's nature that occurred when sin entered and that inheres in the human will and inclinations. It is, quote, the chief sin which is a root and fountainhead of all actual sins, end quote, from the Book of Concord, Formula of Concord, Solid Declaration. All right, so we've got this twofold nature when we talk about original sin, and it's kind of helpful to keep that in mind. Um, if someone's talking about the imputation of the guilt, we don't need to immediately assume they're denying that the nature has become corrupted. If someone's talking about the nature being corrupted, we don't need to assume that they're denying the imputation of Adam's guilt. They are both biblically true. And again, I think most important for us to see in our own context is this idea of the corruption of the nature. And as Wolfmuller says, that inheres in the human will and inclinations. So Lutherans will talk about bondage of the will. What does that mean? Does that mean that the devil is making me do things against my will, that my will would do otherwise, but is bound to him, and so a, a slave, an unwilling slave of the devil? No, that's not really what bondage of the will means. Bondage of the will means that the will gladly, joyfully, obediently, whatever other terms you want to use, does whatever it wants. And whatever it wants happens to be evil. So my analogy, <laughs> my analogy from this, I know some of you like this, some of you don't, but that's okay. Um, my analogy is from my, um, my postgraduate level herpetology class. <laughs> when we were studying lizards. And, and when you look at the behavioral patterns of lizards, a lizard isn't going to transcend his lizardness. He's going to run into his hole, or he's going to attack, okay? Or, you know, maybe he's just going to stand still. There's only three things a lizard's going to do. A lizard is not going to produce a top hat and begin to dance. A lizard is not going to strap on a jetpack and blast out of there. There are only so many things a lizard can do. He is bound to his lizardness. He's only got A, B, or C. There is an analogy here to um, the way that our wills are bound in sin. You say, well, I don't feel very bound. I could do X, I could do Y, I could do Z. Yes, but just like the lizard can't escape his nature, his lizardness, you as a sinner, me as a sinner, we can't escape our sinfulness. And so no matter what choice we make, free choice we make, philosophically defined, is a sinful choice a self-serving choice and a choice in antithesis to God's good will for us. Okay, so hopefully that will help you understand uh, a little more accurately what bondage of the will is and what it means then for our natures. You know, organically one whole, we are one human race, come from Adam all the way down, and thus on account of his sin, our nature has so changed that our will and inclinations are bent against God. Make sense so far? Okay, so how, what does that mean then? If our will and inclinations are bent against God, how much good does it do just on the surface level if you told somebody like that to change? They're not going to do it because change would take place in the will and the will is already saying no, right? 
It's a, it, and here it's a little bit analogous if any of you have, and I hope not, of course, but if any of you have um, had personal experience yourself or direct personal experience with someone else who's, who's suffering from severe depression, how much good does it do to tell them, pick yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, let's get going. That, that's precisely the problem, right? That's precisely the thing that's broken. And so by analogy, precisely the thing that's broken in man is his will. You can't say, hey, I want you to flip that switch. And um, no, that switch has to be flipped for me. And that's, that's precisely God's operation upon the will. So, you know, the will is, the will is not this thing that, you know, moves itself toward or away from God. The will is already oriented away from God, and the will itself is what must be converted. Sorry to use so many analogies, but maybe it's helpful when these things are kind of abstract to make these connections. The way we're talking about the will right now, a somewhat helpful analogy is a light switch. You can speak to a light switch as much as you want, but it's not going to turn itself from off to on. It has to be turned from off to on. It has to go from darkness to light. Who moves that? The light switch itself? No. The finger. Or, in our case, God. He has to change the will. Now, how does he change the will? How does he convert the will? Precisely through his word. Precisely through the law and the gospel that then flips the switch of the human will, so to speak. But that's God's doing, not the will's doing. Okay, so we're going into some, you know, relatively deep water theologically, but it's important because if we get this wrong, we're going to get Jesus wrong. And these, uh, you know, this is one side of the coin and reflected on the other side is the concepts of grace and what it is Jesus has done. So let's put it this way. What if your will is, f is completely free and capable of choosing God or not choosing God? Your will itself is not bound to sin. If your will itself is not bound to sin, then is it not good? Yes, and if your will is good and free, then did Jesus need to die for your will that is already good and free? No. You see? So as soon as you, you assert on the one hand, well, no, there is freedom of the will. My will is good and my will is free. There's this thing in me that has remained untainted by sin. You're actually making an argument that there is this thing in me for which Jesus did not have to die. It's a pretty big deal. <laughs> it's a pretty big deal. So that's where these questions, where the rubber hits the road. And of course, we know if we are dead in our trespasses and sins, then we can only be saved by Jesus. And then also we see the links and extremes to which he must go to save us. He himself must die and rise in order to take we who are dead and raise us. So the whole Bible starts making sense when you get this right. All right, let me pause and see if you have any questions or comments on that section. Otherwise, um, I'll, I'll point out a couple of things here and we'll move on to the new material. Everybody okay? All right. That's great. Maybe the coffee's kicking in for me. <laughs> so if we look down, um, just drop halfway down the page on page 60, you'll notice something that Wolf Mueller points out. It's, a, and it's an extremely profound and often overlooked point in Genesis, right? When God makes man and woman, he makes them in what? 
his image. Yes, okay, that's earlier in Genesis. Now, here we are later in Genesis, after the fall, and let's read. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived a hundred and thirty years, he fathered a son of his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. What happens between the creation of man in God's image and the creation of man in man's image? That's sin. And that's Moses' way of articulating the profound change that's taken place. No longer do we have God as our Father. No longer are we made after His image, but we are rather made after the image of fallen man. We have Adam as our Father. So then what is, now you can see how, why baptism is so foundational when Christ comes. By baptism, we are once again restored to be sons of the Father. No longer in those waters we die and are no longer sons of Adam. We are raised once more as sons of the Father. It's a complete symmetry. It's a direct answer to this theology. So again, baptism isn't this thing that, you know, John the Baptist invented and Jesus just went along with. Um, this, this has roots that go all the way down to the depths of the scriptures, all the way down to the depths of history, uh, to, to Genesis 5 here. Okay, let's take that next paragraph right after the biblical quote. Adam and Eve were created in God's image and likeness. Now, after the fall, Seth was born in the image and likeness of his father, Adam. The image and likeness of God had been lost. Seth was born a sinner, born dying, born in a fallen world to fallen parents with a fallen sinful flesh. Now, quoting Psalm 51, In sin did my mother conceive me, said King David generations later. In Adam all die, 1 Corinthians 15.22. We inherit Adam's sin. We inherit Adam's death. Okay, and if you want to make all of this theology quite concrete, if you are certain that your will is so free, uh, just cease from sinning. Right. That's within the powers of your free will, if your will is truly free. And if you can't, of course, then you must, with the rest of Christendom, accept that your will isn't free. Um, likewise, I mean, I suppose you could say, if your will is truly free, cease from dying. Cease from dying, if that's within your, if that's within your power. If death is spiritually imposed upon us as a penalty, as the scriptures say, and you are spiritually free, then you can certainly resist and indeed overturn this spiritual penalty if you are spiritually free. So the implications of this are clear for us. We can't even stop sinning. We can't keep ourselves from death. We're not nearly as free as we think we are. And honestly, God be praised because that means that salvation is entirely 
100% and completely in his hands and not in ours. This too is the symmetry between these two points, between original sin on the one hand and grace on the other. How can I know beyond the shadow of a doubt that I'm going to be saved? Because it's entirely in God's hands. If he left even an iota of it up to me, there'd be a huge chasm of doubt, wouldn't there? What if I mess up? What if I, what, what, what if I screw it up in the last seconds? And what if I lose my mind? There'd always be a what if. But because salvation belongs to God alone, we simply entrust ourselves to him and say, You, O Lord, are good. I am not. You, O Lord, are trustworthy. I am not. You, O Lord, are free. I am not. You, O Lord, are perfectly gracious. I am not. You, O Lord, have promised and cannot lie. You, O Lord, have given your son to die for me, and not only for me, but for the sins of the whole world. You, O Lord, have baptized me and made a promise to me that is completely unilateral. You, O Lord, commune me regularly for the forgiveness of my sins, so that not even my sins can snatch me out of your hand. You, O Lord, have done it all. I can be certain because my certainty rests in you. This is the beautiful peace we have as Christians. And so, so again, um, we, you know, we have these, these biblical views of sin, these biblical views of grace. They're extreme and repugnant to fallen reason, but they need to be. They need to be both on the law side and on the gospel side. It's where we're going to see ourselves most accurately in terms of our sin. It's also where we're going to see God most accurately in terms of his goodness and graciousness, and our theology is going to be sound and whole. All right, that's the exercise. That's the point. And we'll, we'll be basically then um, continuing with this through the remainder of the chapter. Before we move on, any uh, thoughts or questions, anything I confused for you or made unclear? I do see one hand here. Mm -hmm. A number of us met who are wanting to address this chaos in the schools comes to mind. Um, I've never seen it so profoundly as on this page. The chaos that's in the classroom in the administrations of schools to allow little children to determine their sexuality. Mm. And I, I mean, yeah, I mean, they're, you're hardly, I, I mean, if someone, when I was in first grade, if someone told me, hey, Jeremy, it's time for you to determine your sexuality, what would you like it to be? I would have said, Tyrannosaurus Rex. <laughs> because what do little kids know? Nothing. Nothing. Yeah, I mean, that's the point. Why are we entrusting these monumental decisions? I don't even let my kids choose when to eat or not, or what to eat or not. Why? Because they'd make terrible decisions. They'd make terrible decisions. Uh, that's just how little kids are. You know, hey, when do you want to go to bed tonight? I <laughs> Never. What do you want to do? Watch TV. What do you want to eat? Doritos and popsicles. You know, I mean, that's how little kids are. And now we want to entrust these major biological decisions. It's just insanity, of course. Now, what uh, I don't want to, I don't want to give any spoilers, but um, Vicar has a marvelous sermon prepared for us this Sunday. And he's going to be talking about um, how even the evil one has his catechists, has his ways of catechizing and teaching the anti-faith 
And I think you've put your finger on one of the major ways, getting into the schools, affecting the young. So thank you for that point. Yes, please. I think you just made that point. It's letting, turning man over to their desires happens when, I mean, again, God's in charge of everyone's faith and everyone's salvation. But it seems that, as you just described, there's so much more of the lawlessness happening around us. I mean, can you address, is it, something that God's doing to try, try to draw people closer to him, or is it just part of the tribulation? I don't know. Mm, in terms Maybe of what, what we're seeing in terms of lawlessness and, and what seems to many minds to be an increase of lawlessness. An epidemic of homosexuality, and it's, you know, even young children, things they would never have even perceived before. It's just being indoctrinated into their mind. Yeah, this is the um, this is the full blown rejection and aggression stage. You know, this is the this is the teenager storming out of the house and you know, got his got his loud music going and you know he's on a tear and utter and total rebellion and there's no there's no talking sense. That's kind of culturally where we are right now. There comes a time where that quiets down and simmers down on a cultural level. And it's like, hey, can we have a rational discussion about this? Um, now, the interesting thing is about, about culture is there is this pendulum that swings back and forth, too. And it's, and it's precisely, it's, it's something interesting. I kind of think it's the genius of God in the civil sphere. Because we are by nature so rebellious, the sinful nature within us, maybe particularly as Americans, I don't know, maybe it's just rooted into our independence and the foundation of our nation and all the rest but this this rebellion this desire to rebel against the status quo well that cuts both ways and there's a real interesting thing happening amongst very young people who have no power whatsoever who are kind of sick of this who kind of realize that the you know the emperor is not wearing clothes and that that dude's not really a lady and that kind of thing and so um so i think that there is some hope uh that, that the younger generations are going to see this now, this whole move of lawless indoctrination that we're seeing as the status quo. And what are they going to do? Rebel against it. And God willing, the church will still be standing with integrity, having not capitulated to this nonsense, because the churches that capitulate to this nonsense, the younger generations, if there's any hope at all, are going to say, why do I need that? You're the church of that nonsense? No, it's going to be the churches that stayed sane and called that out the whole time that then the younger generation can say, well, where is an establishment that thinks the way we think, that thinks this is ridiculous, that's willing to say the emperor has no clothes? And the church can then have open arms and say, welcome to sane land. <laughs> so that's my hope. Now, is that a fool's dream? Maybe, I don't know. But that's my hope. And then, and then sort of on the macro level, that's the cultural equivalent to can we have a rational, dis and you, you did your rebellion. It was really impressive. Now, can we have a rational conversation about this? Can we come, can we come back home? You know, prodigal son, have you, have you wallowed around in the pig slop long enough that now you might want to come back home? That's kind of the, the cultural moment. But I think, I mean, this is, we're talking decades, you know, decades. That's how these movements are. So, for what it's worth, that's my take on it this morning. <laughs> Okay, one other hand, and then we'll uh, we'll move on here. I don't know if it's worth it all, but Aristotle had his flaws. But think of Aristotle's comment <laughs> that I gave to my five 
eight-year-old grandson, uh, as we're having lunch outside in the lockdown, Connor, on this table, there is a blue wave. You can't call it a blue, you can't call it a red wave. And he said, immediately said, well, that would be like my calling. I'm using my adult mm -hmm. words, mm -hmm. my pronouns and so forth. That would be like my calling, Caden, his nine-year-old brother, a girl. It's logical. You cannot have two truths. And that's got to be mm -hmm. put right to the kindergartners, preschoolers, it just seems so insane that anybody is thinking uh, that this is going to fly. My eighth grade teacher said way back in my Lutheran school, no civilization has ever survived that has tried to promote homosexuality. Yeah, that's, that's true. It's kind of one of those tags of a fallen culture is when you get to this profligacy and degeneracy, the nation can't stand. It's like this built-in thing God's got going on. But I, you know, again, we'll hope for our nation's sake. This is where we can really shine as true patriots, I think, um, to love our country, to love our people, but to love them truly and objectively and at our own cost. And even while they're spitting in our face, so to speak, but to love them and desire what's best for them and try to serve them. You know, that's that's our posture. So thank you for that. All right. Well, let's. um I want to jump down to the bottom of 61, the very bottom of 61, on that last paragraph, and we'll do just a little skipping here. Um, so that last paragraph, Wolf Mueller writes, if it was our sinful actions that got us in trouble in the first place, then maybe, just maybe, our good works could get us out of it. Yes, what's that? That's the opinio legis. That's the self-justifying idea that's in our heads. But we were in trouble long before we managed to commit our first sin. We were conceived in sin and deserving of wrath from the very first moment of our existence. This means it is impossible for us to save ourselves. Our only hope for salvation is in, uh, excuse me, is another, a savior. We inherited sin and condemnation from our father, Adam, so we must inherit life and new birth and find salvation in our adoption into a new family. Adam brought death, Christ brings life. Yes, and I would argue that even though it is a minor point in the scriptures, because the scriptures are ever interested in the dominant and central point, which is that in the truest, most objective, non-compromising sense, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's who God is. And yet what you do find in rare occasions are references to Jesus being our father. Now, in what sense is Jesus our father? Um, do you remember from Isaiah? He's the wonderful counselor, almighty God, everlasting father. Yeah. So it's all talking about the Messiah, he's the everlasting Father. Now, in what sense? In the sense that we're going to confuse the Trinity? No. In the sense that he is a new Adam, a new father of our race, a new patriarch or head of our race. That's precisely what those references are. So just as our father was once Adam, our father is Christ, 
Um, and of course, it's so fascinating because Christ is, and I, I did this not too far off in a sermon because it's just a wonderful way to, to think. I, you can you cannot exhaust this way of, of thinking about Christ, but that Christ fills all vocations to us. He is, he is father, he is brother, he is servant, he is master. He's husband to the church, exactly, thank you. And, and others, and others that I'm forgetting. But, but there's this beauty in which Christ um, fills and expands, transcends all vocations unto us. Okay, let's jump over to page 62. And here, Wolfmuller introduces us to the uses of the law. Let's begin at the beginning, the very top of 62. The subheading is, I'm talking about the man in the mirror. Is that a riff on a Michael Jackson lyric? I'm looking at the man in the mirror, something like that. Don't want to get in copyright trouble. Theologians speak of three uses or functions of the law. The curb, the mirror, and the guide. Okay, well, what do we mean by these three things? And Luther inspanded these, these uh, things about because... Um, they're helpful distinctions, and they're taught in our catechism. It's important for us to realize the limitation of these distinctions, that they're meant to serve a specific point, to articulate the uses and functions of the law, not to be somehow built upon as if they were a foundation for theology or something like that. They're an outcropping of theology, an outcropping of the word. All right, well, let's get into it. The curb of the law, writes Wolfmuller, keeps society in order. It keeps us from hurting and harming one another, dishonoring marriage, taking other people's stuff, and damaging the reputation of our neighbor. The law as a curb is why we have government, military, police, courts, and judges, and jails, and stop signs. Okay? So that's the law, and we might even, you know, you can call this the natural law, too, because it's just the natural law written into men's hearts, written by extension into societies. And it's why human morality, you know, with, with few outliers and exceptions, generally all looks the same. Generally all looks the same. I mean, there are outliers and exceptions, as I said, but generally these things are true, that you cannot just harm one another. You cannot dishonor marriage. You cannot steal. You cannot slander, libel, damage other others' reputations, this kind of thing. Okay, and the curb, you can see here um, that all the curb can do is curtail external behavior. Okay? And all the curb can do is, you know, you say, you take, you take kind of like nude, fallen human self-interest. It's like, well, I just want to do whatever I want to do. Right? Um, babies are kind of born this way. Um, they just want what they want. They want to do what they want to do. They don't really care if there's a rule. And a lot of parenting is like, no, here's the rule. And here's the consequence. You know, as they grow older, the kiddos, it's like, oh, here's the rule. Okay, here's the consequences. That kind of thing. What are you, what are you doing? You're, you're curtailing the behavior. You're setting up a framework from kind of a, a, a just, uh, again, kind of a, a nude, very basic, just self-interest. I'm going to do whatever 
I want to a, a strange conformity that the curb does. No, now it's in your best interest to conform to this law because if you don't conform to it, you know you're going to you're going to be in timeout for five minutes. Okay, so now it's it's convincing them that it's in their self-interest. Our whole legal system is basically like this. Does it change anything about the self-interested nature of the human being? No. It just says, Rhody, you can't, you know, you might want to go rob a bank, but you can't rob a bank because you'll go to jail. So it's in your self-interest. You see, it's just appealing to my self-interest no matter what. And so it does absolutely zero to convert or change the heart. It only changes the external behavior by adjusting the self-interest. Does that make sense? So that's the curve. Please. So I was thinking about this when you said the devil has his own catechesis. Mm. And he is using the schools, you know. So if you lack parenting and the curb, you know, hopefully it's in your heart. But what if you're taught and taught and taught and taught that none of that matters? Does the curb go away? Yes, that's a great question. Well, it's not so much that the curb goes away. It's, okay, so, so I, I actually had thought to add this amendment to what I had said earlier, and you give me a perfect opportunity. Um, start, it's just cleanest to think of it this way, um, even though temporally this isn't how it develops. So it's cleanest to think of it this way. Think of the Ten Commandments. Think of the content of the Ten Commandments, the moral content, okay? That, now, let that be a reflection of the natural law, okay? a reflection of a healthy human conscience and a healthy human society or collective, uh, collective of consciences. We good so far? Okay. Now, what happens when um, society starts warping away from that natural law. Well, all of the co the collective conscience starts warping away and you start redefining good as evil and evil as good. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we're seeing. Now, it's not a it's not a natural law, it's a rejection of natural law. It may even look like a morality, but see this Lutherans have gotten themselves so confused on this point because they say, well, it looks pretty moral to me. It looks like, you know, a pretty legalistic system to me. Uh, rubbish. Rubbish. Anything that departs from the law is lawlessness. Whether it looks like a legal system or not, don't let appearances deceive you. It's lawlessness. Right? Because it's a rejection of the law. It's anomie. It's putting forward a, a different right and wrong. Does that make sense? Yeah, but if a child isn't taught or ergo goes through the devil's catechesis that this is all, you know, like the original sin. Ah, oh, that's rubbish. You can eat out of that tree. Yep, yep, exactly. It's just the same old thing. Right. But where the schools, the institutions are being led away from the curve. Mm -hmm. They are, you know, I think it does all come from the schools and the universities. But 
does a child then lack the ability to even see it? Yes, because their conscience gets distorted right along right. with society's, and then this is this is also why we why the law precedes because to one degree or another this always takes place in society. It's why in society you can only see like a general kind of thread of morality. Then you can see where any given society is warped on that. You know, maybe some are polygamous or some allow I don't know mass scale. Theft, like in the stock market, or something like that.、Uh, you know, you can see warping of this in different cultures, but you can still see the thread. That's maybe a better way of putting it. And yeah, the people, the people are swayed by this. This is why the first step is God's law. You know, it's why you don't just go in and say you're forgiven. To people who have a very twisted morality, because I mean, in their minds, what does that sound like? Like. Like well, what is the sin I've done? They would define a sin as what is actually good. So you coming and announcing they're forgiven only confirms them in their error. You see, this is why the law has to precede and set right the heart first and foremost, or accuse, crush, and destroy the false heart and its false piety and the way it's become、uh, skewed, and it has to say, no, this is objective truth, and that. That law rings in the conscience and heals the conscience, so that it can say, you know, so that every mouth is stopped and the heart is in terror at the true condemnation of God. That's the first step. The church has to teach it, though. The church has to. Teach yeah, the church has to proclaim and teach the law, one and the same, and it's going to do its condemning. On the one hand, it's also going to do its its guiding, and we're not there yet. But I think that this is what you're kind of hinting at. In a healthy society, the schools are guiding the children, guiding the next generation of that country in a way that is as close as possible in keeping with the natural law.、Mm-hmm. This is where you know this is where Christians can and should. Critically judge their leaders, and the large catechism says as much, on 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 two bases. Okay, number one, and and most obvious, most just organic and fundamental. Number one, are they governing in accordance with the natural law or not? In so far as they have departed from that, there is cause to rebuke, to rebuke, to call back. Okay, and the second criteria given to us in the large catechism is protection of the church, because as God has ordained and ordered the left-hand kingdom, it is there for the protection of the church that God might give the gifts of piety to those people via His law and gospel.、Mm-hmm. So, where the government is failing to uphold natural law, where the government is failing to protect the church, it is in an utter state of failure, objectively speaking.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, sounds a little familiar. Yeah. Okay, so that's um that's how we can understand the curb. Now, in our context, all of this is extremely relevant, and may even seem to be more so relevant. And yet, if you zoom all the way out and are completely objective about it, and think of humanity over the centuries, the most important use of the law is actually this. Is actually why does he have it third? It's the second, the mirror, <laughs> which we're going to get to in a minute, I guess. He's got the curve, the guide, the mirror. He's throwing us for a loop because it's the curve, the mirror, the guide. 
Did I see a Did I see a hand waving around? This would be a good time to. Well, one quick thought. Um, I don't know how to say this, but obedience to the law, in my from my perspective, brings comfort and uh, satisfaction. If I drive to Arizona and I stay under the speed limit the whole way, I there's something about that that yes. is. Can you comment on that in the you know, uh, in the theological side, I know God says in the Old Testament he will change the desires of our heart. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he's at work in us, but in the natural law within our the civil, I've experienced satisfaction there, you know. Absolutely. Thank you for saying that. It's so true. This is Paul in Romans 7, and this is exclusive to Christians, delighting in the law of God. And we can actually find delight in it because we know it's right. And a lot of that delight, frankly, it's not a self-righteous kind of delight. It comes after you've walked the long, hard road of sin. And you know the antithesis of delight. You know how wretched sin makes you feel. You know, I, I think of sin very frequently as like, it's like that shiny fruit that looked so good. And probably the second, you know, the second you bit that outer shell of it, it was probably sweet and great. And then by the time your teeth and tongue touch the inside, it's just ash and dust and death, you know. And that's that's how sin is. Sin is like, hey, this is good. This is right. This will feel good. This will give you pleasure. This will give you relief. This will make it. And as soon as you do it and it's had its way and you've had its way, it's like now comes the pain. Now comes the poison. You feel wretched. You feel wretched. This is where sin can really be addictive because it's like I feel wretched. So I sin. So I, and, I, and in sinning, I feel wretched. So I need to sin again to feel better. And then I feel wretched. And do you see what it's like? Yeah, it's kind of like, I mean, I'm not making light of it. But it's like I eat because I'm fat and I'm fat because I eat. You know, it's this kind of cyclical um, thing that happens in an internal human level. Um, with sin, we can get, find ourselves in these, in these spirals, right? So then, it, no surprise, no surprise that born again through the waters of holy baptism, enlightened with the Word of God, our conscience is increasingly healing by the power of God's Word, us coming more and more to our senses of what's right and good and what's wrong and bad, and then participating in that, delighting in the law of God, it's no surprise whatsoever that we find satisfaction we don't ever say, oh, I've kept that law perfectly. It's not a self-righteous satisfaction of like, okay, now God owes me a giant gold star. Um, that's not the kind of satisfaction. But the kind of satisfaction of like, I see why God did it that way and it's good. And I feel good doing good. The good that he has given me to do. I mean, what on earth could be wrong? Any, any, any quote-unquote Christianity that wants to object to that is not a biblical Christianity. No. So thank you for bringing that up. I think sometimes you feel really good when you fulfill your vocations, too, even though you didn't do it perfect. You know, I feel that way. Juliana goes to work one, on, on Tuesday, and I'm with the kids, and it's like, if I get homework done and a fresh-cooked meal, and they're in their pajamas, and like, that's satisfaction. Hey, <laughs> it doesn't get any better than that. This is a gold star day. I'll take it. Yeah. Okay, well... 
let's look at what Wolfmuller does, because he actually moves in a different direction. I'm not sure why he does this. But curb guide mirror. Okay, let's correct this right off the top. Um, when we talk about the three uses of the law, and, and you can see this on page 62, can't you? The big words standing out of the text. Curb, guide, and then lower down on the page, mirror. That's what I'm referring to. Okay, so, so in Lutheran theology, the three uses of the law are curb, mirror, guide. And that's important because we, and we, you know, I want to correct this in myself, of course, but we have a habit of just speaking as if everybody knows what we're talking about. And so we'll just say the first use or the third use, assuming everyone knows when they don't. So the, the first use is the curb, the second use is the mirror, the third use is the guide. Now, Wolfmuller switched the order here. So with that stated, let's go ahead and jump into guide as he does. And let's just go right into that paragraph. Skipping ahead for a moment, Wolfmuller writes, the third use of the law is the guide or map. According to this use, the law gives shape to our Christian love and service to the neighbor. While the first use of the law makes sure I don't hurt or harm my neighbors, the third use puts me alongside my neighbors to love them, to serve them, to lay down my life for them, to forgive them, to pray for them and bless them. Because we are forgiven by Jesus, we are set free from the need to self-justify. There is no need to justify our existence or our actions to ourselves, to God, or to our neighbor. You are already justified. The righteous one, the Son of God, who sits at the right hand of the Father, declares you righteous through the spoils of his victorious death and resurrection. This means you have nothing to prove. Think of that. God loves you. And this gives you the freedom and courage to risk a good work, to suffer and die for the neighbors God has given you. Yeah, this is the beautiful freedom. This is the liberty of Christ. This is the law of liberty um, th and the law of Christ. This is, um, this is precisely what Wolf Mueller's touching on. So the law utterly is transformed in Christ and becomes this glorious, beautiful, delightful, freeing thing where it's it sets me free uh, you know i can recognize still the sinful impulses within me it sets me free and says these are the good works i can see the sinful impulses within me saying well set up these other things as good works and the law comes and says no these are the good works ah okay and then in these good works um we know that there is no more condemnation and so I'm simply free to engage in my vocations knowing full well that i'm not going to do them perfectly on the one hand but not letting that hinder me or depress me or drive me to not doing anything. Okay. But rather, I'm going to know on the other hand that God does not even reckon my sins against me. That's true for all of us. The scriptures say this very thing. He does not even count our sins against us. You know, how does God see you entirely different than you see yourself? God looks down and sees you as his baptized son, his baptized daughter, your sins washed away, utterly and perfectly clothed in Christ, the crucified Christ, the risen. And he doesn't even count or impute your sins against you. So you go about your vocations and you're like, oh man, that was a, that was a seven out of 10. 
That was a 3 out of 10. Okay? And you know what God sees is 10 out of 10. 10 out of 10. Yeah, it's glorious. It's so wonderfully freedom. This is the freedom of the law. This is the freedom of the law. And any Christian who's going to say, like, the gospel sets you free, and they're not talking about the freedom of the law, the freedom of Christ, the law of liberty, then they're actually talking about taking you back into sin. You know, sometimes you've heard this extreme, this antinomian kind of extreme of, the gospel sets you free, now do whatever you want to do. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. When we started this class a few moments ago, how did we define sin? Remember the lizard? The lizard can only do lizard things. Hey, now what do you want to do? Well, that's just you doing your things. You're right back where you started. You're right back in original sin. The gospel did not set us free from the law so that we could go right back to ourselves into original sin. The gospel set us free to enjoy this glorious and beautiful freedom of the law. The law without condemnation. The law set before us as a guide and a map. And so here we can, we can thoroughly delight in the law. We can delight in God's design. We can repent when we fall short, to be sure. But now we're talking about a different use. Now we're talking about that second use, the mirror use. But insofar as we're being um, defining and distinguishing this third use, we're going to talk about it as a guide, as a map, as the law of liberty, the law of Christ, etc. So far, so good? Okay. This, by the way, is why Luther puts the law first things first in his catechism. Okay? That's why it's first. That's why it's there. That's why the head of the household should teach it to his kids. It's also why Luther you know, encourages us as adults when we wake up, make the sign of the cross, and the fullest extent of this is do the Ten Commandments, do the Creed, do the Lord's Prayer. Why every single day lay the law before us? Especially when we wake up. It's like, I haven't sinned. You know, and if you do this at night and you're like recounting on your day and it's like, okay, well, I've got opportunity to confess my sins and be absolved. And then you go to sleep. When I wake up, it's not immediately like this existential, uh, analyze yourself by the mirror. You know, that's not the point. The point is, how are you going to live today as God's baptized child? You make the sign of the cross. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I'm God's baptized child. How are you going to live today? Here's the Ten Commandments. Who is God and what's God going to do for you today? Here's the creed. How am I to speak with this God? Here's the Our Father. It's just this glorious, glorious daily theology we have as Christians. All right, please. I have a question going back to the light switch analogy where that fits into what you're describing. So if we're plugged in and Great. praying and doing our daily connection with the mm -hmm. Word, mm -hmm. does that keep the light switch on? And then, I mean, can the light switch go on and off? How does that? The light switch yeah. can go on and off, but we don't keep it on. <laughs> yeah, and, and so we're going to have opportunity as we go into this text to do a real thorough job. I'll give you a quick answer still. Um, I just don't want you to feel like you're only going to get a quick answer. As we go through um, Wolf Mueller's text, we're going to see a lengthy answer to this. When we talk about the light switch being flipped on and on, we're talking about conversion. We're talking about going from a son of darkness to a son of light. Who's flipping the switch? God is. Okay. Now, if we're going to change paradigms and start talking about, okay, God has flipped the switch. I'm a child of the light. I'm a baptized child of God. Now, what can I do? My, my will has been flipped on. The light switch has been flipped on. Now, what can I do? And here, our confessions are very clear that we cooperate with God. We do, in fact. The, the will that God has set free cooperates with him against the will of the old Adam within us, which is still an antithesis, and the will of the world and the devil. And so now we've got 
in, instead of instead of the fallen Adam and the world and the devil, we've got the new man and the church and God. And now it's time to fight. Yeah, it's time to daily fight. And of course, what does that daily fight look like? Very frequently, Romans 7, the good I want to do, I do not, the evil I don't want to do. Okay, but we do not lose heart. Who will save me from this body of death? Christ Jesus, my Lord. I get, how's that song go? It's kind of annoying. I get knocked down, but I get up again. Yeah, do you remember what I'm talking about? Oh, it's a terrible earworm. I'm sorry if I just put that into your head for the rest of the day. But it's, but it's theologically true. That's what it is. It's, I get knocked down and I get up again. And guess what God's doing through that? I mean, in a very macro sense. Humility. Humility, 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 humility. That's what he's doing. And at the same time, strangely and paradoxically, those who he humbles, he exalts. In the humility, organically, is the exaltation. So God's doing both. You know, some of the, one of the most glorious feelings I think you can feel, once you know how God works, is that, like, when God really humbles you, and, like, the old Adam is just stinging, if the new man has his wherewithal, he should grab a hold of that and be saying, thanks be to God, almost weeping with joy, because that's the dawn. That's the beginning. That's the start. That's God has humbled and he will exalt. He will lift me up out of this in integrity and, and make me new. Make me new. Yeah. So these are, um, so yeah, when we talk about, when we talk about, um, the converted Christian and then what is the will like? Now we're going to change analogies altogether. And now that, now that will is active. Okay. It would be, there are some wrong ways we can look at that. It would be wrong to think of the converted will as a, as, as God's the hand and the converted will's the glove, because that makes the, that makes the will totally passive. It's not passive, it's active. What would be, what would be an extreme of making it too active? Okay, this is the example that the confessions use. Imagine a, imagine a big, uh, cart filled with hay, okay, and one oxen can't move it. It requires two. So God is one oxen and you're the other oxen. Your will is the other. And together you can pull this thing. That's a wrong way of looking at it. It gives way too much credit to the human will. Okay. So we have these ditches into which we refuse to fall. But anything between those, anything between the air is fair game. And it's absolutely fair to us for us to articulate ways in which we cooperate. Where this theology goes arise, it's like, my good works are entirely passive. Okay, what does that look like? That looks like the teenager sitting on the couch and mom's being like, hey, take out the trash. Now, God's saying, hey, do these Ten Commandments. Oh, mom, no, you don't understand the bondage of the will. I can't get off the couch until your words move me and empower me. <laughs> right? You know, this is terrible theology. Eventually, mom's going to be like, what are you doing? What are you talking about? Get up. And same with God. You know, we can't, we can't feign this passivity when it, when we're already converted. We're already children of God. And He's saying, I, as your heavenly Father, want you to do these things. We can't lay on the ground. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. You're going to, I'm going to wait till your Holy Spirit moves and compels me to do this. That's not how it works. The Holy Spirit's moving and compelling you right now through the words. <laughs> get, get up, get going. Yeah. So that's hopefully helps you in terms of understanding that paradigm. Okay, so last but not least, we have the mirror. And we also only have like three minutes left. So let's, let's look at the mirror. Now, the mirror is the second use 
And as I said just a minute ago, as important as the curb is, as important as the guide is, and maybe in our context these, are, these seem as though they would be even more important, be that as it may. When you zoom out as far as you can on theology, and you're looking at theology as objectively as you possibly can, the second use is the main use. God promises the Messiah to Adam and Eve, even in the garden. The seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. Christianity is going on for thousands of years before we get to Moses and before we get to the giving of the Ten Commandments, the giving of the law. Why is the law suddenly imposed when Christianity was already there? This is the question Paul answers in a couple of his epistles, and he says to make sin exceedingly sinful, to show us what sin truly is, to show us how lost we truly are, to show us our need for a savior and like a, like a tutor, like a pedagogos to drive us to Christ our savior. That's why the law is given. Now, when we're thinking of the second use of the law, we're thinking in precisely these biblical terms. We're seeing that God gives us the law to drive us to Christ. And if we're not driven to Christ, what good is the, what good is the, the guide? What good is the third use going to do for us? Nothing. We won't ever experience it. Right? If we're not driven to Christ, what good is the curb going to do? Very little. We're going to be unconscious of it. It's still going to be operative, but we're going to be unconscious of its meaning and greater purposes. Okay? So the others will lose their meaning and importance if the second use doesn't have its full impact on us, and that is to drive us to despair, to kill us, so that the gospel might raise us and give us hope, no, no longer in ourselves, but solely in Christ. Make sense? All right, let's pause there. Next week, we will get further into the mirror, and I think, in fact, I'm pretty certain we will be able to fly through the rest of this chapter and then uh, be done with sin, which would be nice. <laughs> the Lord be with you.